Really funny episode. <laughs> the seven five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love this episode. You guys, hi, it's Patrick and Jillian. Oh yeah. I, no, they I think they know. Yeah, hi, welcome. You guys, we're doing a repeat this week, but we're doing like one of your favorite, favorite all-time episodes. It's a wild ride, the seven five. <laughs> will I you give them say. a little bit of will you give them a little bit of a cop? Oh yeah, you know, you know, you they come out there, they're drug dealing, and out comes the street sweeper, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's a gunfight in the middle of the street. What do you want to do? <laughs> Street sweeper. Street sweeper. My, drag my favorite, one of my favorite, yeah, of course. <laughs> there she is. One of my favorite things in this episode, which I don't know if we really like dove in on so much, but was something I really remember from this movie is that they were stealing so much money and they were getting so rich off of like dirty money uh-huh. that they were forgetting to actually cash in their paycheck from the <laughs> NYPD. <laughs> That's right. And the wives, the wives are like, ah, oh, hello, Tony. <laughs> Why all your freaking bills, all your paychecks just like lining up over here? And they like forgot to cash in their checks. That's how much money they were making. I want every movie we do to take place in Queens or Me somewhere too. that sounds like Queens. Yeah. Oh, remember when this episode came out, Dory, the wife, started DMing us on Twitter? I remember. Dory was our best friend for like five minutes. Dory needs to write a book because she has a lot to say. She does. Dory's got a lot of opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys, just real quick, I'm, I'll spare you all the details, but you know we've got two live shows left this year. Wait, uh, we do? We do, girl. What? This two is live- brand new information. <laughs> it's not like you say it at the top of every, every show. I know. You guys, in September, we're going to be in uh, Toronto for the Just for Last Festival. In October, we're in Brooklyn with Lance and Maggie and Tim mm-hmm. from a big Maura Murray live show. <laughs> our live shows are insane. Come check them out. Um, also, don't forget about our Patreon if you want like 90 bonus episodes to binge right this second. Yeah, I want to know the official number. At this you point. know what? For next week, I'm going to have that for okay. you. I'm going to do an official count. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. But if you want to hear our episode by episode coverage of The Staircase, Serial, Making a Murderer, The Jinx, Lorena, Lorena. The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Uh-huh. Right, and also, you guys, the um, the Casey Anthony one. That's, oh, that's right. in there too. Ugh. Bonkers Ugh. shit. Anyway, we love you. Uh, enjoy the 7-5. And we're, we're going to say a quick goodbye to you at the end. Yeah, have, uh, have fun in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> have a nice day. Look, it would be a real shame if something happened to you. Now that's the mob. The Cops didn't really do that, but you know, you get it. Enjoy. I'll meet you at the diner. Yeah, oh, I'll see you over there. Yeah. <laughs> New York is in the grips of a crime wave. It was like the heyday of crack. It was violent, man. Homicides, robberies, rapes. It was a war zone. East New York, Brooklyn, 75 precinct, the deadliest precinct in the country. Who did I burn to get put here? It would scare Clint Eastwood. When I first went to the precinct, I hear about this guy, Mike Dowd. Mike is just crazy. Michael Dowd was a crook who ended up wearing a cop's uniform. He was a criminal. Once in a generation, corrupt cop. I consider myself both a cop and a gangster. Forget about Beverly Hills and all that other stuff. The ghetto is one of the richest neighborhoods there is. Maybe there's some way we can make money from this. La Compañía. It's a very serious Dominican gang. $24,000 in our hands to talk. Mike was a rain. Say no problem. In his business, if you mess up, you got killed. I'm a New York City cop. I'm taking a risk of going to jail for a long period of time. And you're going to short me a dime? This word against mine. And I'm a cop. I'd break your neck if your neck needs a break. I had three machines counting money, and it's still not enough time. Everybody on the floor now. There's no becoming a cop again. 
gonna have me killed. We knew we were up against a really tough crew. A month ago, I was a regular cop, and now I'm a criminal. That's what they taught us in the police academy. Got a guy in the front, a guy in the back, got an entry team. You felt like you were God. The normal person that's doing wrong is going to have a fear of being caught. I never had a fear about getting busted. Michael Dow did not have any fear. Because the cops around me would never give me up. All right, girl, get us started. All right, so this is about the 7-5, <laughs> which is a precinct <laughs> in East New York, Brooklyn. So they start talking about like how bad New York City was in the 70s and 80s. Most, More specifically, the crack epidemic in the 80s in East, East New York, Brooklyn. That's how you have to say it every <laughs> single time. Justice Department officials now say there is a direct link between crime and cocaine. Evidence of heavy money and heavy, violent drug traffic is all around. It was like the heyday of crack. Every city was having trouble with violence. Don't move! New York City at the time was having 3,500 murders a year. And East New York was the worst part of that. And it's statistic after statistic after statistic. Yeah, and the 7-5 was the 75th precinct in Brooklyn, and they like they led they led in homicides every year. <laughs> they they like wore it on their sleeve. It was super dangerous. Like the most cops died, the most people died. It was it's five square miles. It's insane. Yeah. Every year we led this led the city in homicides. We led the city in police shootings. There was a captain here would take a Polaroid photo and say Give this to your wife so she'll remember who you were. The star of the story <laughs> is uh, Mikey Dowd. And we instantly are at September 27th, 1993. And it's like, it's his hearings, yeah. his proceedings, right? And they're televised. Mr. Dowd, during those 10 years as a police officer, did you use your authority to commit crimes and acts of corruption in violation of your sworn duty to uphold the law? Yes, I did. This guy singing like a canary from day one. Like, did you abuse your power? Yes. Did you commit thefts? Yes. Did you do drugs? Yes. And my favorite, where he's, where he's they're like, how many crimes and acts of corruption do you think you committed? And he's like, oh, um, hundreds. And I literally, <laughs> I have written in my notes, what are we even watching right now? Hundreds. Hundreds. And then it's like 10 years earlier, crack was sweeping Manhattan. <laughs> the good old days. Right? Oh, my God. So then also, you guys, Mike Dowd is a talking head in this documentary. He is telling this it story. It took me a minute to figure that out. This documentary should be called Singing Like a Canary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every criminal in New York is interviewed in this documentary. And also, like, the 7-5 was the most corrupt, but no one was more corrupt than Mikey Dowd. My thing is, like, all of these people are just admitting to their crimes. Yeah, because I mean, they served already. They're I guess done. it's, like, been adjudicated and whatever. Oh, I Googled. Just wait until I tell you what the aftermath is of Oh, my this. God, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, seven hours from now, when we get to the end of this, Great, we'll do perfect. that. perfect. So they go back. They're just like, you know, it's the deadliest precinct in the country. And there are all these ridiculous stories, which I, I'm sure looking back, like, you know, your memory is always just a little more exaggerated. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, the, uh, the sergeant used to take a Polaroid and say, give this to your wife so she remembers who you are. And it's like, um, do you really? Like, did they read? Did the captain say, give this Polaroid to your wife? Or like, how quickly did that get super old? It's like, oh, here's Jim's line again. Right, and they probably thought it was hilarious. Like, and then there's this guy who we will meet later. I'm not going to tell you his name now, but we'll, we go back to him. But he's like, who the fuck did I burn to get put, put in here? It would scare Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood <laughs> is garbage. Where's the bell? Where's oh, no! the bell? Uh, uh. 
Uh, can you tell the people how long we just been looking for the bell? Give or take like 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Clint Eastwood gets all the garbage bells. So, and then it's like, welcome to East New York. Welcome, welcome to, to the land, land of, fuck. of fuck. And they just basically <laughs> are saying, and that, so that's Kenny who says that. But they're just saying like, I just really need to make the picture of how bad this was. Like yeah. they're saying like 200 calls would be in. You go to answer one call and they're like. Now you're down to 199. No, the calls are still coming in. Accident, a dispute, a fire. Homicides, robberies, rapes. You name it. It just doesn't stop. It is bad. And like there are pictures of so many dead bodies in this movie. I can't even tell you. I know. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. So let's go back to Ken Urell who gives basically the where it's like, oh, we are off and running, girl. The <laughs> welcome to the land of fuck. It's like I, I right. love Ken. Ken is super dilfy in certain shots. Other shots, he looks like a dead body. It's fine. It's weird. He's yeah. from Roselle, Queens. He went to Catholic school for 12 years and he became a cop because he had no direction in life. Right. Which... <laughs> A ringing endorsement for the NYPD. I know. It wasn't a dream to become a cop. I became a cop because I really had no direction in life. and could have just as easily been a fireman. But the test that came out first was the police officer test. So that's the test I took, and I did well. And I was called right away. I was called before I was 20 years old. We got a gun and shield. And I get assigned to the 7-5 precinct. So now we're like back at Mike Dowd's proceedings. And we learned that Mikey Dowd, the most corrupt cop ever, is, you know, he's 32 years old at this point in the 90s. And I'm like, damn. I know. Full Uh, head of hair. Looking good. Married Suffolk County, whatever. He started January 26, 1982. And he had some integrity training. (laughs) Did you receive integrity training at the academy? Some. Yes. What do you mean by some? We had visits from internal affairs officers. Did you personally treat it seriously, the integrity training? Uh, no. And based on your conversations with your other recruits, did they treat it seriously? No, uh, that's how we all formulated our own opinions from that. And based on what you could see, did the instructors treat it seriously? Not at all. So this is a whole thing that they really doubled down on in this hearing about, like, internal affairs and how cops just don't take it seriously. Right. And, like, so basically what this movie is, it's, like, a bunch of vignettes until we get to the craziness in the end. So, like, there is a weaving timeline. So if it seems disconnected, it's not. We're just telling you what happened as we learned it. They're literally, like, it was bad, and then it got worse, and then it got worse. And then this happened, and then this Colombian drug cartel, and then this gang, and then this, and you're like, oh, my God. And then this wife who was like, no, I don't think you should do that. Right. It's it's just bananas. So we're... It's not disconnected. We're just telling you in order. And every once in a while, it's like, pay attention to this because this is the thread that's going to totally. bring it all not together. Not to make a too on the nose pun, but we're giving you the blow by blow. Oh. <laughs> is Courtney Love in this? Courtney Love. She should be. The amount of cocaine that is being snorted by these cops is unbelievable. So present day Mike Dowd, who like really does not have a chip on his shoulder. You, there's no remorse, not, not a care in not the world. Not an iota yeah. of remorse at all from the very beginning. But at the same time, you're like, I kind of like this guy. I know. It's awful. Totally. Garbage bell for us because <laughs> it's bad. Um, but you are kind of like, I'd hang out with this guy at a party. I would totally get drunk with this guy. Stories for days. Oh, for days. And he's happy to talk about yeah. them. So he basically says that like going to the academy is just like going to a parochial school and no one really took it seriously. And basically they were taught, just cover your ass. I recall having internal affairs, giving a lesson to the class. And after the individual left, the our academy instructor looked at us and said, now you can go that way or you can go this way. 
Uh, you want to be a successful cop, you don't go that way. And this is the academy. I, mean, I didn't even step on the street yet, and I'm being told, cover your ass so that you don't have to deal with internal affairs. So just lie and steal and make sure that you're, you can trust your partner. That's really... And then you guys, in 30 years, there's going to be this whole genre of podcast that's going to pop up all around what you guys have done. Uh-huh. We thank you for that. Yeah, keep NYPD. it going. Keep it going. <laughs> and then he also, Mike also makes a good point where it's like, okay, you only learn so much in the academy, even if you are taking it super oh, seriously. Sure. Especially in a precinct like this. Yeah, where he's like, you know, you just learn things on the street. Learning the streets is, is a transition process. It comes from the other cops, too. You'll learn from them what the street is telling you that you don't know it's telling you. Um, you'll learn the walk of someone with a gun. The, you'll learn the eye drift of someone who maybe has drugs on them. You start to learn body language. That's their everyday... Can you imagine being married to one of these people? No, absolutely Every not. day you're just like, see, go to the 7-5. I'll just stare oh. at this Polaroid picture of you all day long and wait for you to come home. So what Mikey tells us... I'm just going to call him Mikey because yeah. we're friends. Um... He tells us that, like, the first year, what you have to do is you voucher things, right? So if you do a bust or whatever, any weapon, any money, any drugs, they have to be vouchered and collected so they can all go into the file. Like, for, inventory. Exactly. So he's like, for the first year or two, everyone vouchers everything. In the beginning, as a good rookie cop, you're going to voucher what you find, no matter what no matter what it is. And then after probably a year or two, and you, you've been driving back and forth to work for the last, you know, 400, 600 doors of duty, and... You feel a little bit underappreciated. You feel like no one really cares. You know, you're really not stemming the flow of crime like you thought you were gonna. You're feeling underappreciated. <laughs> you're risking your life. You start skimming stuff off the top. And yeah. suddenly you're not vouchering as much. And that's how you just start pocketing everything. His first experience with this is when he pulls over what he calls a Puerto Rican mystery. No, back then it was called a Puerto Rican mystery. <laughs> now, for the cameras, it's an 18-year-old mystery. One day I was hurting for money and I just took a risk and I pulled over a motorist who happened to be an 18 year old mystery back then it was called a Puerto Rican mystery no license no registration no plates no nothing but who is driving around with no license plates with a bunch of drugs and cash in the car? Like, no, I feel like New York City was a pretty uh, different place back then. I know. But like, no matter where you're from, like, don't draw attention to yourself. Right. Just sit quietly with all your drugs and your money. <laughs> but he had a nice thick stack of $100 bills on him. And I said to him, uh, you know, you got about you know, $1,500 to $2,000 worth of tickets here. So I suggested that if he bought me a nice lobster lunch, I could let him go. Buy me a lobster lunch. <laughs> And the Meaning, guy just, like, peel off a couple of those hundreds. And he did. Yeah. And Mikey was like, and that was it. And honestly, who wouldn't? Right. You he, know? And that, that was the dragon that he chased yeah. to this day. So then we meet Chicky. I met Mikey D, obviously, in the 7-5. Every now and then we would be paired up. There's something so goddamn sexy about Chicky. Really? Oh, I don't know what... All of these men Is it the are, stealing or the looting or the lying <laughs> or the corruption? What... Or the beating or the drugs. Right, or, or the, yeah. yeah, which it's what one exactly? Of those. But the first thing that Chicky does, it tells us a story about a Rastafarian. I mean, stories for days. This, this is why I love this documentary. It's I just know. story after story after story. And it's like, it's like basically the story is that this woman comes to the to the precinct and says right. like, her boyfriend is beating her up and right. she needs them to take her back to the apartment so she can get some stuff. Mm-hmm. Chicky and I roll up. We walk up the fucking staircase. Man in his 20s, Rastafarian, dreadlocks, answers the door. But once he sees the cops, they say oh, he looks like his world just ended. The woman runs in, she grabs a couple of bags of clothes or whatever, and she runs out, she's gone. So Mikey grabs the guy, we get him pinned. As I got him on the floor in his living room, there was a bag as big as, as big as a fuck, it was... Gigantic bag of 
fresh marijuana. And there's no hiding it because it's like a 52-gallon right. tub <laughs> full of marijuana that they can't even close it because it's popping out everywhere. Like, How do you even – you guys, these are walk-ups. How do you get that much pot up the stairs? I go, Chicky, under the fucking couch. He goes under the couch, pulls out a duffel bag. I open up a bag. thing was loaded with money. He pulls out two guns. Chicky takes the guns because he's, he's a gun, gun buff. buff. <laughs> I go, what are you doing? Fuck the guns. This gas you're not big. So we peeled off about eight grand, whatever we took from them. They eventually get super greedy. The Colombian cartel gets involved. We'll get there. <laughs> but at first, they just like take a couple grand. Totally. And tell this guy, this, this is your lucky, lucky day. day. You're you getting get off scot-free. Free. We're just taking some of your money. But I also love that like the end of this story is that this is when Chicky's like, this is how we knew we could trust each other. And I guess right at that point right there, I knew I could trust Mike. And I knew he could trust me. It's a good score. Yeah, absolutely. And the, this is when Chicky's like, look up I don't give a fuck in the dictionary. And Mikey Dowd's right there. He's right there. Chicky. Um, so now we now we sort of like get a little bit more of this guy, Kenny Urell. Because Mike is looking for a partner. Kenny's looking for a partner. And Kenny wants nothing the fuck to do with working with Mike. Neither does Dory, his wife. Right. <laughs> About two years working into the 7-5, I had an opening in my car. Kenny was griping that the only one left around was this Michael Dowd. He was trying to find himself a partner. I was on the no good list, so he wouldn't work with me because he had heard all the stories. Dory's like, absolutely not. All of Kenny's friends were like, do not partner with Mike Dowd. And even Kenny was going like... He doesn't uh, want anything to do with it either. Yeah. I actually went to roll call. I said, stop putting Dowd in the car. I don't want to work with him. And it fell on deaf ears. So nobody listened to Kenny. They got partnered up anyway. Right. And then they'd like just start getting along. They'd go to Joe's Bodega, get some fucking Heineken's. <laughs> we started to get a little bit of comfortability working with one another. He would take me to Joe's Bodega for some fucking Heineken's. We make a personal connection about our wives. We got married at the same time. We're both around the same age. We had sons at the same time. They bonded because <laughs> they both had wives. <laughs> It doesn't take a whole lot sometimes. You know what? When you're sitting in a patrol car, hearing gunshots and thinking like, this could be it for me. I guess you just have to bond with whoever is in front of you. And not for nothing, like these two guys are super fun, super cool, super like they're like they're garbage eventually. But like I can see them getting along. They seem like the kind of guys that would just kind of love each other. Right. And Kenny, which is exactly what happens. And at one point, Kenny's like, you know, look, Mike is a tough guy. He can take care of himself on the street. I know he'll have my back. The worst I do is drink on the job. How? How much trouble could I get into? And then there's a picture of him in, uni- in uniform with a Heineken, like with the biggest smile on his face. And I'm like, what is happening? How many times do they talk about stopping at the bodega to get a couple of Heinekens for the drive home? Mikey Dad's favorite drink in the world is a Heineken. Like, especially behind the wheel of a car. At night, speeding, running every red light. That's true, you guys. So now they're in what Mikey calls a love affair. Which, listen, I I loved every second Do you want of the that. bell for yes, that? Here us. <laughs> So by June of 87, they become partners. They officially partner up, you guys. And the money is endless. So Mike starts talking about money day and night. There's money all over this person. How much money could be grabbed and be in our pockets. But the thing is, Mikey's realizing to get to really get as much money as he wants, Kenny has to be in on this. They both need to be equally guilty. He's looking for any job to come over, any situation where 
he could get me to cross the line. So Kenny tells this story. And at first you're like, look, Mikey Dowd, he's not killing anybody. He's stealing from drug dealer. Like, how bad is it really? Right. And you think that he's only harming the bad guys, so to speak. Right. And then Kenny tells the story and you're like, oh, fuck. Job comes over the radio. A woman's house down the block was burglarized. We get to the place and there's this high school age girl standing outside her front door. And we start going through the whole place. Find out there's no burglars in the building. Mike grabs a girl and goes, do you know if your parents kept any money or valuables anywhere? This girl is traumatized because she just witnessed a burglary. Right. She calls her mother at work or wherever. I was like, mom, do you have any money anywhere? The cops want to make sure it's still there. The mother told her where the money was hidden. And I found it. Mikey goes to look for it. He's feeling around. He goes, nope, there's nothing here. They must have got it. They go back in the car. He gives Kenny a $100 bill. And Kenny's like, what the hell is that? He goes, you didn't even see me take it, did you? Stole the money that was probably going to this girl's school fund or or their savings or whatever. That is not stealing from a shady drug dealer. That is not hurting the bad guys. He totally took advantage of this 14-year-old girl. And then Kenny has this whole story about how like... That $100 sat on the top of my locker on the top shelf for the longest time. I don't want to say the $100 bill haunted me, but I didn't spend it. I don't want to say it was haunting me, (laughs) but I never spent it. Because the whole deal is like, if Kenny takes that hundred bucks and like goes with it, then he's flipped over. Like then there's no turning back. Right. So then there's this whole story where there's another situation basically where Mike sweet talks his way into an apartment, into a huge bag of cash while Ken is off doing like at court or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he basically like leaves this like job with thousands and thousands of dollars and says to Ken, you could have, this could be your life. Right. See this amount of money I got while you were gone? This could be your life if you're willing to like come to the dark side. Right. Look what you missed out on. This could have been yours. $50,000? Fuck. He was impressed by the money and I told him, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if there's three pieces of rice on the table, my wife, my kids, then you, I'll go hungry. So that's how I see this. And he went, I'm in. You want to tell us about Mr. Perez? So we're cutting back and forth between his like hearings, you know, like modern 1992, and then like the, the backstory. Mm-hmm. Mr. Dowd, you said that you and your partner had agreed that you were going to graduate into more serious crimes at this point in your career. Did you accomplish that objective? Yes. How did you accomplish that objective? You know, through uh, we met a we met a we, we had a very strong relationship with a, with a local drug dealer. His name was Mr. Perez. And then it like cuts back in time and we get this story about how Mike sees this beautiful woman just like lounging on a car outside of like a radio store. Which is ridiculous. Right. I'm driving up Van Sicklin and on my right hand side I see this very attractive Hispanic woman, very slender, red pump heels on, long black flowing hair, standing next to a shiny, beautiful red Corvette. Immediately I was, of course, Drawn to the scene. You got a beautiful woman standing next to a beautiful car. I mean, how perfect could it get? She's like cleaning this gorgeous car, but she also looks gorgeous. Like, I'm not saying that you can't do both, but it's like cleaning a car is kind of like a messy job. (laughs) This dark-skinned Dominican guy that looked like a string bean with long braided hair that came down to the middle of his back come come up up to the patrol car and say, hey, officer, what can I do for you? I went, I said, hey, my name is Baron. He's like, I don't give a fuck who you are. He kept looking at my wife. He goes, what's up with this girl here? My man is taking. That's my wife. And I said, holy fuck, I can't believe that would be. Wow, you must be something. 
and even Baron Perez is like, I think he kind of used that as an in, like to talk to me, to like have, for us to have a conversation. Because what he's realizing is that drug dealers are where the money is. Mm-hmm. Drug dealers have nice cars, and they are the ones that want this like crazy stereo equipment put into their cars. Right. So Mike knows that this guy has access to these big drug dealers because he's installing all of these crazy stereo systems into their cars. Right. He knows that I know he's a player. He doesn't know how much of a player I am at this point, but he sees the glee in my eye. So here I am. I happen across this individual running a proprietorship with nothing but drug money coming in and out of the place all day long. Maybe there's some way we can make money from this. So they decide to go into business together. So it's Kenny and Mikey yeah. and Baron Perez. And Baron Perez puts them in touch with the company, which is one of the biggest drug dealing organizations in New York City. La Compañía. The company. <laughs> Come on. The company was set up very much like a business. They had supervisors. They had workers. They had runners. Runners would take the drugs from the Heights over to East New York, put it in a stash house. Then they had the manufacturing part where they had the heat sale jumbled 20s for distribution. They're super powerful. They made millions of dollars. And the boss was Cello. This guy named Cello. I'm sorry. That is the sissiest name for the leader of a a gang. His real name is Jose Montalvo. I'm like, what's so bad with that? What's so wrong with that? You guys just own your name. Cello probably means something super badass that we just don't know. Garbage bell for us. Cello was not intimidating to look at. But he has his darkness, you know. He was a brutal guy. He didn't think about it to have somebody kill him. He killed a lot of people. This is where we get the montage of dead bodies that goes on for hours. Forever. The company was very violent. I mean, there were murders of people who were trying to rob them for the money that was at the spot. There were murders of people who were in the company who they perceived as a threat. There were murders of rivals. They brought people specifically from the Dominican Republic to work in New York whose only job was to kill people they saw as a threat. So the 7-5 is trying to get Cello. You guys, it, this is the caperiest, like, funniest story ever. So Joe Hall and this DEA guy, they are doing surveillance outside this restaurant because there's going to be a meeting. And it's it's from, it's like outside, it's like every movie, there's like yeah. the unmarked van totally. and the super you bad guys, footage. You stop using vans. I know. Just like, get a, get a, get a, get a Volkswagen. I know. Now with the technology, are you kidding me? I know. Tom and I are in the van and we're comfortable, we're having our coffee and then slowly we start to see people show up. So Tom, being a DEA agent, he starts taking the shots. And we're pretty excited because we know that everybody's showing up. It's a part of Cello's crew. And we said, well, we'll be able to identify who this person is, this person is, this person is. Because at that point, we had cooperators that would point to us, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. Joe's like, this is awesome. We're totally going to get these guys. But then Joe's like, I... All does not go as planned. Joe gets the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I'm giving it a little bit more time, but I'm getting the EBGBs. I'm saying something's up the way they're looking at us. I said, Tom, that's enough. Wrap it up. We got everybody. When you see the shot of the street, it's like all these little cars and this big van. Gigantic van. Wonder what they're looking at. Yeah, it might as well be one of those like periscope things. Like, all right, <laughs> you like guys. A like, totally. <laughs> Like Inspector Gadget. All of a sudden, there's a van that's been parked there for nine hours that no one's gotten into or out of. Just turns on. Just turns on. <laughs> Boom. Of course, they know no one's come in and out of that van, and they've had their eye on it. And I hear, Mita, Mita. And then I, I see a guy walk over and pop the trunk 
of a blue Chevelle. The pack comes up and they start reaching in and they start bringing out hardware. That's when they bring out the hardware. They brought out a street sweeper. <laughs> a street sweeper. You guys, they show the like 30s. It's like an Uzi. It, it, it is, but it looks like something out of Bonnie and Clyde. Like it's so old school. And hardware is guns. Yeah. The hardware and the street sweeper. And they start <laughs> being chased. As they start to bring out the hardware, I get the car out in time. As we pulled out, two rounds were fired. So now I'm really flying out of there. They are absolutely in pursuit. I put over the radio, 7-5 seven, seven, squad, we got shots fired, Central, we're being pursued. So now Joe is on the radio, and he's like, hey, uh, we're, being, we're, we're in pursuit, and they're still always using, like... But I love how they use the technical, like, the perp, we were in pursuit. But they'll also say, like, the street sweeper. The street sweeper, you guys. Like, they'll still use the slang, but yeah. they'll still say, like, the perp was under pursuit. It's like, all right, Joe. Central calls back, and she said, give me a description of the car you're chasing. Joe's like, no, 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 girl, you misunderstood. We're being chased. By the drug dealers. Can you imagine for one minute if I was ever a cop? Because it would start out like, uh, we got a 10 9 ah! Ah! They're coming! Remember when you were on vocal arrest? <laughs> I, I knew it wasn't going to last. And I start to head towards the 7-5 precinct to the fort. I think we went down Essex Street or Linwood Street, and they stopped their pursuit. They just stopped chasing them because they just noticed that they're going to the 7-5. Right. Basically, they're just like, oh, okay. They just, it. it just like, it's kind of anticlimactic. I'm like, oh, all right. It was all worth it just to say street sweeper. Street sweeper. And for the visual image of this van that's been not moved, that no one's gotten into or out of for nine hours, was like, it just turns on. Right. Real smooth, guys. Super, super slick. And <laughs> you know, you- it's like, mm, oh, it takes forever to turn on. They're like, God damn it, this thing they is They put just- on the blinker to get out of the parking Right, right. <laughs> Do that, that arm move where they put their arm around the, the passenger seat and look back. And then they use the one hand to do the... Is that just the Queen's thing, or does everyone... They get out, like, they pay the meter really quickly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. Just, does anyone have a quarter? Anyone have change for a dollar? So I think why they told the story is to show that, like, this organization is badass. Please yeah. do not fuck with them. No. Kenny and Mike decide to fuck with them. Yeah. So Mr. Perez uh, says that Cello wants Mikey and Kenny to give the drug organization intel. About narcotics if they're gonna bust if they're not gonna bust i tell kenny that we got to deal with this guy what mike came up with was eight thousand dollars a week and we will offer our services to this dominican's drug gang they are now receiving systematic payoffs from this drug organization yeah, that's the deal eight thousand bucks a week and they own these two cops basically right and kenny's like this is not the hundred dollars in my locker this is like there's no going back for this <laughs> yes. but he's in yeah so one day, Cello the idiot decides to short the cops. Mikey is not, not fucking having it. Having it. Mike is fucking pissed. They fucking shorted us. They fucking shorted us. I'm a New York City cop. I'm taking a risk of going to jail for a long period of time. And you're going to short me a dime? It, it, he's There's a line he cannot cross. So what happens is Mikey's so mad that he like goes to their corner, corner. And he goes, well, I'm harassing people. I'm pulling them over. I'm yeah, doing this Yeah, for like the and next this. four days, he parks his car in front of like their drug spot. Hitting the lights, hitting the sirens, chasing them, harassing them, pulling them over. He fucking sends a message over to Baron, tell that cop I'm going to have him, I'm putting a contract on him, I'm going to have him whacked. Mikey is like, really? <laughs> oh, really? Great. You know when someone that you know is a monster is really calm all of a sudden? Totally. And you're like, oh my God, but he's not calm for long. Yeah, like Chicky said, get out that dictionary and look up, gives no fucks. Gives no fucks. Yeah. So Mike is now like, he's like, all right, fine, whatever. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Went to work the next day, happened to go down Fulton, right in front of Hale, and here comes his Porsche. 
pulling away. I had never seen this guy in person, but I knew it was his car. But the thing is, you guys, this is the 80s. Cello doesn't know who Mike Dowd is either. Exactly. So, so Mike knows this is the guy, but the guy does not know that this cop is the cop that he shorted. Right. And Mike pulls him over, the license registration. He goes, he complies. I'm like, you're still using the cop talk. It's amazing. And then he like throws the paperwork back in his face and he leans over and he's like, you're going to fucking kill me? Yeah. And Cello's like, oh my God. Yeah. And Mike does the toughest tough guy thing. Just let Mike do it because I can't. Yeah, Mike, take it away, Mike. I'm standing there. I'm in his face. You're going to have me killed? Why don't we do this? You get out of your fucking car and I'll be a real man. You get out of your fucking car right now. And we'll do a 20 fucking pace walk off and we'll see who wins. Let's do it right now. You fucking owe me money and you fucking put a hit on me, you motherfucker. No, no. Call it off right now or you see how this is. This is for real. This is for fucking real. You can't just tell you putting a hit on a fucking cop and me not fucking come find you. I did. Day one, I found you. I wonder what happened to Mike's mustache. <laughs> Those, you guys, we haven't even touched. The mustaches on these 1980s oh my God. cops Why are Why does re- anybody think that that was sexy? And what was unibrows. That? Oh, my God. I mean. I will say the, the, the manscaping was not a thing in the 70s. Oh, and like they were proud of it. I know. It and so at this gross. point, even in the 80s, it's like, you, can you start? If you're blowing all this coke, <laughs> you probably want something to do. Well, maybe you shouldn't like take a razor to your face if you're on cocaine. Something must, must be done yes. about but the But then mustaches. after he... He like makes this big scene. Mike just decides he doesn't want anything to do with the company anymore. He's like, "Fuck him." Enter Ms. Adam <laughs> Diaz, dressed to the nines. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Uh, she is part of. Well, she's the head of the Diaz organization, yeah. which is like a bigger than the company. He does not give a shit about the company. How does your organization compare to the company? Nothing at all. What do you mean? Because the company was a fucking low scale shit. Half a grand, grand shit, dimes, dimes. Can you have the connections I had? I could take him off of the fucking business in a heartbeat. But I want to do that. Why? Because he didn't represent no, no competition to me. There was also one other connection. And on top of that, his sister was in love with me. Beautiful girl. I was banging the shit out of her. Girl, like, talk about giving no fucks. I know. So this guy was 20 years old, unibrow for days. Like, but definitely, like, handsome. Would kill you without thinking about it. But, like, kind of cute. Probably would think it was super funny. Yeah, But yeah, he's yeah. wearing, like... A suit, sunglasses, a hat, like a he present looks day. Like the Joker, yeah. Present day, we're yeah. He has like the purple, totally. like collared shirt. It's another one of those things where I'm like, why is he sitting down and being like, yes, I'm the drug, I'm the kingpin, right? Well, I googled just just. Oh my god, I'm dying. End. So he's running a bodega, basically that's selling drugs in the back. On the back, it was a metal door. You knock on that door, and the guy will open the door for you, and you give him the money. I won half a key. I won sixty-two ounces. So when they come out of there, they come out with a whole bunch of groceries, but underneath all of that, you got kilos. One stop shopping. Totally. At the Diaz bodega. But like, you guys, he was selling cocaine by the kilo, and in 1980, whatever year it was, the kilos were going for like $34,000. Do you think I didn't do all the math? <laughs> So in 1987, a kilo of cocaine cost about 34 grand. At 20 years old, Diaz was selling 300 kilos a week. That is over 10 
million dollars a week in 1987. Oh Today, my God. it's about 23 million dollars no a week. No wonder this queen is dressed to the nines. 20 years old, and yeah. Mike was like, "Isn't that enough?" I know. Like you just, I mean, you're fine. You have yeah, to keep, and that's the plenty. thing about these guys. They were so greedy. It was endless. Oh, can we talk about Adam's um, music tastes real quick? Yes. Oh yes. Oh my God, you guys. So Baron Perez, who runs Auto City Music, who does like puts all the stereos in all the drug dealers' car. He yeah. again is the connection. That's how Mikey and Kenny get are going to go work for this guy Adam to Diaz. Yeah. So Adam is just like, look, he has specifications. <laughs> just he's very particular. I took him a porch on 9/11, candy red, beautiful bugle. And I say, look, Baron, I don't like ghetto music. I like Julio Iglesias. I like Brian Adams. You know, but I don't like those fucking big black boxes with big speakers. I hate that shit. But I want to hear the music. Brian Adams. Can we talk about the shade of them playing the music video? Like it's like they just like just so you know this is who he's yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They play the music video. I, it is so shady. I love also that Adam has no awareness that like it's not cool to like that music. He doesn't care. You know what? I also like don't really believe in guilty pleasures. Whatever, man. Totally. <laughs> he's twenty years old, making as much as many millions in a week as possible. Like totally. Go get your summer of '69 on. Nobody is judging you, girl. <laughs> no one's judging you. Barrow calls me. He's got these two police officers want to talk to me about. They could protect your business and they could give you information about when they're gonna ready your place. I told Byron, okay, let's do a meeting with the with those guys. So the deal is $24,000 just to talk. Just to talk. That Mikey and Kenny get. And then they're still, they're not going to break their $8,000 a week thing. So they're both walking away with $4,000 a week. Right. So what they do for $4,000 a week is basically they're like snitches for Diaz. If we know of or are aware of any undercover activity in the area, we would inform him. We will... Make sure all the other places are raided. You tell us where your competition is. We'll make sure Narcotics knocks them out. We will tell you when Narcotics is in the area. Diaz was all for it. He he wanted that clout. And they were as happy as clams, and so were the wives, because money always feels good. Isn't that right, Dory? <laughs> I was sitting in the back seat. I asked how their day was. I tell my wife, reach in that paper bag, can you give us a couple of beers? We've got some beers. We're going to, you know have a couple of beers on a ride home. Oh, no problem. I opened it up and it was money. And I basically screamed. I was like, oh, money always feels good. So then it cuts back to Mike at his hearings and they ask him. Who did you consider to be your primary employer in fact at this point, Mr. Dowd? The department who gave you your shield or the drug traffickers who were willing to pay you because of it? Crickets. Crickets, you guys. He looks, He's and he's really thinking about it. Because he's being honest. He wants to give the honest answer. Oh, he's been honest. I mean, 100% honest. The, remember the beginning? Oh, yeah. hundreds. <laughs> like, you know that this guy, because at this point he's already been sentenced. So it's mm-hmm. like, what, the, what does it matter? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just singing like a canary. canary. So now, you know, now like Mike, you see that Mike and Diaz have this like great working relationship. He like, calls Diaz his boss. Yeah. And he, like Mike is just talking about this great life he's living. He's going on vacations. They're putting in pools. He forget to pick up his paycheck yes because it was so meaningless to him and kenny on the other hand was doing this again like in air quotes the right way yeah like he still had payments on his cars he had payments on the things that like a mortgage and the house or whatever because he he has six hundred dollars a week coming in exactly you buy the porsche and the pool and the appliances with the cash obviously (laughs) what about your lifestyle at this point mr dowd could you tell the commissioners in the public what kind of car you were driving at around this time 
87 Corvette. Mike is an idiot. Mike buys a Corvette. Dummy, dummy Mike. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? We're making $600 a week. You can't afford a brand new Corvette. And, and it cuts. It's like a montage of like four people being like, you can't bring the car. Michael, don't ever, ever bring that car to the precinct. Don't drive this fucking car to the precinct. What does he do? The next day, he brought that car to the precinct. <laughs> the reason I drove the Corvette to work was my wife and I had a deal. Two weeks of a month, she gets the Corvette. Two weeks of the month, I get the Corvette. It happened to be my two-week period where I had no other car at the time. So it was either drive her car, which I didn't have a car. And the thing is, in the movie, they show the wife's car. Yeah. And then oh, he, yeah. like, cuts himself off. He's like, I didn't have a car because he didn't want to drive, like, the Mazda right. to work or whatever. <laughs> it's a fine car. It gets the job done, Michael. <laughs> whatever. It's like a gray Mazda. Idiot. So, Mr. Dowd, let me ask the question another way. Did you consider yourself to be a New York City cop or a drug trafficker? So now things are starting to unravel. Oh my God, you guys, this gets so fucking crazy. I mean, so crazy. So an informant comes in. He's giving us really good information. I said, just know, no lies. And tell us everything. And he said, you don't want to know everything. And I said, what do you mean? Like, you know, of course I want to hear everything. And he said, no, you don't want to hear everything, Joe, because I'm talking about boys in blue. So Joe decides to start looking into this. And the guy goes, his name is Mike the Cop. He drives a red Red Corvette. Corvette. They call Internal Affairs. They ID him in five seconds flat. (laughs) Because it was Mikey the Cop who drove that fucking red Corvette to work yesterday. What a dumb ass. So I went to the 75th Precinct to obtain documents. Parked my car in the rear yard. And as I was beginning to walk in, police officer Dowd is walking out the back door. I look him square as I'm walking by him, and the feeling that I get is perp. Perp. <laughs> this is hard for me to reconcile because he's wearing a uniform, but he doesn't get good from him. So this guy, Joe Trimboli, begins observations. Following them on duty, following them off duty. And it's a very precarious thing to do. Remember, they're cops. They are trained to follow people and know yeah. when they're being followed. And then he tells about, he tells us about this, like, you know, one night that he's, like, trying to follow Mikey. Michael Dowd had a red Corvette. He would pull out of the 75 precinct, and he'd run every red light looking into the mirror the entire time. Mike knows that at some point so he's going to get caught. However, in the fall of 1991, Mikey... the derpy music. Mikey and Kenny decide to distribute cocaine in Suffolk County, Long Island, where Mikey's from. unbelievable, these guys. At this point, we had some nice cash sitting around the two of us. So why don't we just back a cocaine operation financially? We enlisted one dealer and set him up in business. So this guy... Harry, Harry distributes the coke, and Dory's like, Harry was an idiot. Like, she's like, he's not a smart guy. Harry didn't look like the brightest kid. Not slick, not especially smart. Remember the dummy who clubbed Nancy Kerrigan, and he just was like the derpiest yes. dummy, who jumped through a glass door uh-huh. rather than push it open? Sure. This guy looks like his brother, literally looks like his brother. It's, it's very true, you guys. Yeah. So Tom Riley is an undercover cop on Long Island. He goes by the name Brian. <laughs> just He really just wanted us to know that. Super incognito. On January 2nd of 1992, I made the first cocaine purchase from Harry. When I went undercover, he sends the coke to the lab. We have 
quantitative and qualitative tests is done on cocaine, it goes back 95% pure. Somebody who's been pure coke in Suffolk County. All right, so it's May 6th. Now it's like, just when you think this has to be it, you guys hang on tight. You guys, This is kind of the beginning of the end, but yeah. it's going to get crazy. <laughs> Sit down. Get your popcorn, get your black beauties, get your scotch. It's getting intense. May 6th, 1992. Sunday morning, Kenny and his family going to breakfast with my parents, which is like the most Long Island thing ever. My wife gets in a car. I start driving down my block to the corner. See a white car. Someone in it. Sitting there on the corner on a Sunday morning is that typical undercover cop car. Again. It's like, guys, guys, these are cops that you're surveilling. You right. don't think... Get a Volvo! Right, and even Dory's like, hey, look at that undercover cop. <laughs> so, basically, these two guys get arrested. Yes. Like, they track Kenny down, they track Mike down. Suffolk County Narcotics slams the front door. Don't do it, guys, don't do it. Get down, get down. Vest, helmet, shield, rushing down the hallway. I'm like, fuck. They throw me up against the wall, they pull my gun out, spread my legs, cuff me up. And they're arrested for drug conspiracy. So while they wait for trial, Mike and Kenny are out on bail. You guys. I don't. (laughs) If you can see Jillian's face. (laughs) So they're out on bail. Mike mentions a couple times that he has this Colombian guy living in his house with him. Yeah. There's no context for it. He says it a few times. Right. He knows I'm in a spot. Comes to me and says, are you interested in doing a hit at this woman's house on Avon Street in Queens? There's a drug lord whose wife is holding on to a large sum of cash and cocaine that they owe this Colombian that's staying in my home. The Colombian that's living in Mike's house for some unknown reason tells Mike, what we need you to do is go to this woman's house, kidnap her, (laughs) deliver her to the fucking cartel in a motel room so that she can be shipped back to Colombia and executed. And Mike's like, what, now? (laughs) Well, because the idea is that they'll get $700,000 if they do this. And Mike, the idea is that, Mike, they're going to skip town. Right. Like they're going to get out of the country. This is the worst idea ever. (laughs) So what about this doesn't seem like a great plan to you? I know. I can't believe it. I said, Kenny, this is my plan. Are you in or are you out? Pounds his hand and goes, we need to do this thing. He says, I'm in. Well, that's all I wanted to hear. I mean, my life was in turmoil. I don't give a fuck. It's me and Kenny back together again. So July 30th, 1992, (laughs) the day of the kidnapping, they go to Avon Street in Queens. They don't have, they're just like hanging out with Kenny in the car. So they have the police scanner on (laughs) and Kenny's like, the scanner's not on a minute and you hear suspicious car on Avon Street. So now they've been spotted. Mikey and Kenny have been spotted and they just book it. Rather than stop at Avon Street. I kept, I jumped back onto the Grand Central Parkway and headed home. We get the fuck out of here. As I'm driving, I see cars just converging from everywhere, sort of closing in on the location behind us. They're just like going home. And Mikey says suddenly he hears the whooshes of police cars in his cul-de-sac. Right. He mentions four times that he has a (laughs) cul-de-sac. We get it. You're, You're a suburbanite now. I turned around and I heard the police cars swinging into the, my, my cul-de-sac. The noise, of, the noise of cars pulling into my cul-de-sac. When they walked in my door, I knew it was Kenny. How the fuck did he do this? And then we get the on-screen text that says one month earlier. Here's what happened. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Kenny turned him in! <laughs> 
Yeah. Kenny so flipped. What we find out, and that even the internal affairs guys didn't know, was that there was a federal investigation that had been going on for years. They had wired up the, the stereo shop. Uh-huh. They had been taping Auto Sound City, Barron, Michael Dowd, drug transactions that Michael Dowd bodyguarded for the drug dealers. They had informants inside. So they were just waiting to bust Mikey. So the fe- what happens is the federal prosecutor reaches out to Kenny's team because he's the less culpable one right. to sort of see like if they can make a deal to really bring everybody down. Right. And so when Mikey calls Kenny with this plan of kidnapping this poor woman, Kenny calls his lawyer and the lawyer and the feds are like, yeah, just you have to do it. You're going to be in on it. That was, you know, clear that I need to start working with the DEA and I decide to cooperate with the feds. So what they decide is Mikey comes up with this again brilliant idea. Also, like Mikey's clearly on cocaine every all day every day cuz he's off his rails. So they were going to trick this again this poor woman. <laughs> Like posing as a flower delivery service, and Mikey's like, "Of course you're going to answer the door for to accept flowers." There was one hiccup in that plan, Jillian. Well, Kenny's like, "I was watching the news. You know, he's watching like Channel Seven Eyewitness News, six thirty, whatever." And he was like, "Because we were on the news like every day, so I was watching the news for us." Totally separate story. A lady was killed and murdered because someone posed as a flower delivery person. I'm sitting there with my wife. I'm like. Oh my God, I hope Mike's not fucking watching the news now because I know he's going to want to call me and discuss it. But Kenny was like, oh, I just don't want to hear. I hope Mikey's not watching the news. I just don't want to hear about it. Like when you turn on the police scanner, immediately they heard him. Ring, ring, ring. And Mikey, like a live wire, that motherfucker stole our plan. Like, it's like. Yeah. I'm watching it, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was going to call you, but I figured what's the point. Mikey makes the point, though, that, you know what? The flower trick can be used more than once. We did not change our plan. Some other woman living in Queens is not going to not open her door for flowers. The flower thing can be used a few times. Michael. Michael. Sit down and have a glass of water. Oh, my God. (laughs) And get a step away from the cocaine. (laughs) My God. So then there's this thing where it's like Kenny's audio is excellent in the case against Mikey, right? And Mike is now standing up in the present, like being interviewed for this documentary. He's like, yeah. I'm not on that tape. I'm not on that tape. Go to the tape. And then the DEA is like, he's on the tape. Go to the tape. <laughs> Girls, just go to the tape. We go to the tape. It was Kenny's words. Never mind. Go to the tapes. Listen to the tape. Listen, listen to me now. This is a should be tied up in the back. And then if they want her, you got her in a hotel room somewhere. And that's it. He can't believe he's like where Kenny got the idea that she was going to be murdered is beyond me. <laughs> but it's like, what do you think the the cartel is going to do to this woman that they need you to kidnap right. and deliver to a motel room? What do they think they're going to do to her? Kenny Page, me, in the wee hours of the morning. He says, it's happening. We're doing it in the morning. So what they do, the feds take this woman out of her home. Yes. At the time and say, all right, we're going to put you in a safe place. Here's what's happening. Uh, there's a plan to kidnap and murder you. Don't worry. It's totally fine. <laughs> totally fine. Uh, we're going to take care of you. And then they set up shop in the house and like they would accept the flower delivery. Right. That was the, that was the plan. But it didn't happen. Right. So in the in the world of this sting that Kenny is involved in, uh-huh. it is 
it is right. When they turn on the police scanner, there are all of these surveillance cars. And what happened was like a local citizen saw a suspicious looking vehicle. One of the surveillance guys was parked near the house and someone called the police on it. He identified himself, hey, we're DEA doing a surveillance. No way hiding that. Mike picked that up. We get the fuck out of here. So here's the audio of Mike and Kenny in the car, like on the Grand Central Parkway going home. And, and Mike's like, they set us up. Who set us up? Yeah. Kenny, how many people know where we went? And Kenny kind of smartly is like, hey, man, I didn't know this guy. Like, they're your, this is your connection. I right. told you. Can we trust them? Can we trust yeah. them? It's kind of perfect. Right. Meanwhile, in Kenny's house, they have the wife has packed all the bags. The house is empty because mm-hmm. what was supposed to happen was Mike was supposed to get arrested, go to jail, and then and then Kenny and his wife and family were going to be taken to a safe house. Right. But that's not what happened. And Mike doesn't know that Kenny was involved, that Kenny turned on him. Right. So now they're in the driveway at Kenny's house and Kenny's wife sees it and it's like, oh, fuck, what, what's happening? Holy shit. I'm running. I grab those bags, I run as fast as I can. My wife is thinking on the fly. She hears a car pull up in the driveway, the door's closed. She peeks out the window, sees us getting back, and Mike is there. And I throw those bags into the bedroom. Hides the bags by the door. She starts panicking. I run into the bathroom. With my hair. Wets her hair like she's just getting out of the shower, because now it's Took taking off my five clothes. minutes to answer the door. And put on a robe. Meanwhile, if it was Patrick on the inside of that house, you would have heard, ah! They'd be in Queens and they'd be like, what is that sound? <laughs> so then they get inside and Mike still doesn't hasn't figured it out. Right. Walked in the house, the fucking house was empty. I looked around, where's all your furniture? Oh, you know I'm selling the house. Yeah, but why would you empty the fucking house out? Well, it shows better when the house is empty. Had a good answer, the motherfucker. Kenny girl, thinking on your feet. <laughs> and, and then even Mikey's like, he had an answer for everything, that motherfucker. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. So that's when Mike goes home, and again, we hear the whole thing about the cul-de-sac. And so they arrest him. Uh, he serves 12 years. Yeah. Kenny didn't serve a day. <laughs> and Kenny says, you know, look, he goes, you want to call me a rat? Fine. In my mind, I saved that woman's life. He did. That yeah. is something he did do. Totally. Life. It's also fine to rat out a fucking corrupt cop, even if you are a corrupt cop. Uh, don't tell that to Diaz. <laughs> Who was deported back to the Dominican Republic yeah. after serving eight years in prison. Our girlfriend Diaz, the Dominican head of that, like... The Diaz organization who makes $10 million a week. Exactly. 80s time. Selling kilos and, of like, coke Unbelievable. Out of a, yeah. So Mike Dowd was convicted of racketeering and conspiracy to distribute narcotics, served 12 years. And even super hot husband Mike was like, is that it? So you Googled everything you said. Yeah. What happened? So Mikey Dowd and Adam Diaz are in business together. <gasps> They're making cigars called Cigar 7-5. Diaz, who was deported back to... Uh-huh. Oh, my God, really? They're in business together. Kenny wrote a book called, like, Betrayed by the Badge or whatever. Oh, like my his, God. Like, his version of it. And they're all on Twitter. Is Diaz on Twitter? Oh, yeah. Girl, I think you're so handsome. They're all on Twitter. You guys, don't forget two more live shows. September in Toronto, October in Brooklyn. You really haven't lived until you've seen us live. Back yeah. me up on IGP. Oh, and if you if you were following the, the passport debacle, my passport came in the mail. I'm going to Toronto. <laughs> I made it. Steve, I made it. I'm so excited that you'll be joining me on the stage. Me too. This is a big deal. It was. I held my breath for like th- two weeks, <laughs> and then finally it came in the mail. I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret. This is not a good secret. No TSA pre-check international. 
I know we should have done global entry and we I know. didn't like a what's bunch wrong, of idiots. What's wrong with us? So now we have to wait for more than five seconds. <laughs> we're used to that now. We're living the good life with that TSA pre-check. You guys check out the pates if you want like 90 full bonus episodes right this second. Mm-hmm. You get all of them at one time. Somebody just tweeted about like I'm kind of a stingy person but if I get 80 <laughs> episodes of TCO to binge right this second. Look. It's money well spent. And that's at the just at the very least. You get yeah. ringtones, you get the after party, you get ad free apps. Come on, you guys. Come on. Already. Maybe we'll meet you at the diner. Yeah, look, we'll see you over there. We can talk about the beats. <laughs> we love you. We love you. Thanks so much for hanging. Bye. Welcome to the outtakes. Five. He's like, I would have been a firefighter, but the cop test came out first. Came out, whatever. How's my accent? Is it as good as yours? <laughs> <laughs> Watch your hot tea. I'm serious. Did you just call me a hottie? This girl who's in, who's traumatized right. because she just witnessed a murder. Uh, a murder. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, she probably has before or since. <laughs> like, I, you could tell that the filmmaker, like, told him the quote or played yeah. him that Mikey, like, and crying about it. Basically, is like, there's no crying in corrupt cops. Basically. Yeah. Oh, Hero Bell. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks but- for that reference. <laughs> And then he goes into detail about how happy it would make him to cut somebody's balls off. I'm like, Diaz. Diaz, girl. Nice. I know. Tori's like, I hate every second of this. Get the Coke off my kitchen table. I'm done. Can you imagine in, e- in East New York, in Brooklyn, in the worst part of Brooklyn, you're like, who's that guy blasting Ryan Adams and Julio Iglesias? Like, and, then you, and then it's like the biggest killer and drug dealer I know, in the I know. city. Amazing. <laughs> 